So Galatians 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And let me just remind you, as you make your way to Galatians chapter 3, that uh, Paul is writing this not to a church specifically, but to actually a group of churches. Uh, Galatia was a region in what is now modern-day Turkey. At that time, it was Asia Minor. And so there are this whole series of churches that the Apostle Paul actually was a part of planting. And Paul is now writing this letter uh, to them, in particular because they've been taken away by what he refers to as another gospel. There's been a group that have come in and infiltrated the church. They're claiming to be Christians, but in fact, uh, they are a group of Jews that are trying to lead these Christians back into or under the bondage that is the law of Moses. And so they're bringing in uh, rules and regulations that the salvation that we can have through Jesus Christ isn't just merely through Jesus, but it's Jesus plus the law of Moses. And so they're trying to entrap them into this. And this is what Paul says. This is not another gospel. In fact, this is not a gospel at all. The word gospel means good news. This is actually bad news. The bad news is you're going to be uh, trapped and be in bondage, in chains. And so Paul is going to write that it's by grace through faith that we're saved and nothing more. It is simple faith in Christ that we're saved because of his grace upon us. And so Galatians, this a letter we're studying is all about grace. And in the first two chapters, Paul shares with us his personal experience or his testimony with grace. And I've encouraged you over these last several weeks to work on your testimony. What has God been up to in your life? Because of all the things we can argue about in church, and by the way, we like to argue about a lot of stuff, uh, doctrines, theologies, eschatologies, any ology we'll argue about. But what someone cannot argue is your personal testimony. Because it's your story. They can't, they may not believe it all, but they can't argue with it. You're the one that experienced it. And so Paul shares with them his personal experience. And then what he's going to do, and he does this in all of his letters, actually, is he's going to give them instructions or doctrine. And then after he gives instruction, he's going to follow it up with application. Because knowledge by itself doesn't do us any good if we don't have a way to apply it. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And so in chapters 5 and 6, he's going to share with us application. But where we find ourselves now is Paul's going to transition and to begin to instruct them doctrinally, give them teachings about grace. If it's grace that we are saved through faith, how is that? What does that study look like through the Old Testament? So Paul's going to take them on a few different journeys over these next couple chapters through the Old Testament. But he's going to begin in chapter 3, verse 1, by giving them a, a wonderful compliment, sarcasm noted, as he writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And so he's going to begin by calling this whole group of churches a bunch of fools. And the reason he says they're foolish is because they've been tricked, or the word he uses is bewitched. In other words, who's cast a spell upon you? Because it must be some kind of spell that's been cast that you would turn away from grace, this gospel of grace, and instead turn to the law. And so he asks that as a question. And then in verse 2, he's going to say, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, what Paul is going to do, and he is consistent with this through his letters, is as he's teaching people, he will actually ask a series of questions. And as he asks those questions, he's assuming these are the things that are going on in the mind of the audience. He's then going to follow it up with the answer to his own question. So this is a way Paul is going to teach us. 
So he starts by saying, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, how did you receive salvation? How did you receive the Holy Spirit in you? Was it because you followed a lot of rules and regulations that were written down for you? Or did you receive it by the hearing of faith? In other words, by hearing the Word of God. What Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, is he says that so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do we receive faith? It's through hearing. What are we hearing? Hearing the word of God. This is why it is so critical for us to learn and to be taught God's word. This is how we actually have our faith instilled in us and then increase in us. You didn't receive faith any other way. There's no amount of motivational speaking you can have that will actually lead to salvation. Do you understand that? It, I'm sure there are lots of other uh, teachers you can listen to. They're far more talented than anything I'm going to do, probably anything you're going to hear here. And yet what makes us different, what sets us apart is the word of God is going to be taught. Whether I miss it completely, whether I'm exciting enough, it doesn't matter. It's the Word of God. And by the way, that's the thing that changes people. The reason I'm passionate about it is because it's what changed me. Him working inside me, it was simply the Word of God. It wasn't any dynamics from a speaker. It was the Word of God changing us from the inside out. And so this is what Paul's saying. How did you receive faith in the first place? Was it your rules or was it the Word of God? And then in verse 3, he says, and have, excuse me, I'll find verse 3 here in a minute. Did you receive it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then verse 3, he says, and are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And so two times in three verses, Paul calls him foolish. He is uh, clearly upset with them. But what he says here is important for us to grasp. Have you begun this in the spirit? And now you're trying to complete it in the flesh. And how many times do we fall into this trap where God begins a work, he starts to do something in our lives, and then as he begins to grow us, what do we immediately begin to do? I got it from here, Lord. I think I'll take over from here. I think I understand enough. I'm going to go and continue this ministry or this work on my own. And so we get ourselves out there because we've now walked away from what he's done through the Spirit. We now want to complete it in the flesh. And then if you look at it historically and you see how many revivals have been started, how many wonderful works of God have been begun through his word and through his spirit, that then almost immediately people begin to develop a program. They begin to develop a formula. If a great church revival happens immediately, especially in our day and age, we want to see how do we copy that success. Can you develop a program, a seminar, a conference? How can we glom onto that? And before long, what happens is the spirit is completely squelched. His spirit is completely stopped because it's a work of the flesh. And so the Lord has been very clear throughout Scripture. In fact, as the Lord called the nation of Israel to go back from Babylon and rebuild the temple, this is what he says to Zerubbabel, the descendant of David that was to lead the people back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they're struggling to rebuild the temple of God. And so what the Lord communicates to him in chapter 4, verse 6 of Zechariah, he says, he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how you're going to construct a temple. 
This is how you're going to build something truly wonderful. It's not going to be by your power or by your might whatsoever. It's going to be by my spirit. And so this is in direct relation to what Paul is sharing here in Galatians 3. How did this happen? How did this wonderful work begin? It started in the spirit. Stop trying to finish it in your flesh. Now in verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Here's the truth about our simple faith, and it is a very simple belief. Other people are not going to get it. They are not going to understand it. They're going to call us simpletons. How is it so very easy? There's got to be way more complexity to having an eternity in heaven. How is this possible? And yet, it is just so. We don't have to come up with fancy arguments. You don't have to have all of the apologetical arguments throughout the entire Old Testament memorized in order to defend your faith. What will defend faith is a changed life. There is nothing that stands up for this faith that we have, this salvation that we believe in like a changed life. You can't argue with it. It's obvious. What Peter says is be prepared to defend or give an apology for the hope that you have in Christ. That's what people are going to notice. When they see you walking around with hope, when everyone else is hopeless, they're going to go, I want some of that. This is all we need to defend it. Now, continuing in verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, here's the thing about the works of our flesh, or our faith, excuse me. Um, our faith is actually dependent upon God's faithfulness. Now, that's going to seem like a circular argument, but what I find is that over and over again, I begin to be convicted by the amount of faith I have, or more particular, by the amount of faith I do not have. I am often uh, concerned and convicted by the faith that I don't possess. But here's the thing. His promise is not dependent upon my faith, but upon his faithfulness. And what is he faithful to? He is faithful to his word, and he is faithful to saving people. God is all about changing people's lives. He is all about salvation. And so what happens is, especially in more charismatic movements, while more uh, rigid and religious movements can put all the emphasis on rules and regulations, and we identify that as legalism. That's easy to call out. But what is also legalism is when we put all the emphasis on how much faith you possess. God could do this if you had enough faith. God could do that if you had enough faith. And my friends, I'm telling you, that's legalism as well. Because it puts the emphasis back on you and what you can do. And the reality is, we can have faith because God is faithful. And Paul's going to give an example of this. He's going to start with Abraham. In verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that's what Paul quotes. That Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And oh, by the way, as he brings this up, realize Abraham predated the law. Abraham was alive 400 plus years before the law was ever given to Moses. And so this is true. Even before the law came around, God was looking to save people by grace through faith, including faithful Abraham. In verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. So what he is saying here is that 
through Abraham, through his line, through his seed, we are actually linked to him because we are children of faith, not of works. And so he begins this story of talking about the faith of Abraham, how we can be children of Abraham through faith and saved by faith through grace. This gospel message was given to him so that we could receive it. But then when you think about it, you have to wonder, this father of the faith, I think about how great Abraham must have been. I mean, I I don't have that kind of faith. But then I begin to dig through the story in Genesis and through the life of Abraham, who was called by God to leave his family and go to a land of promise far away. And as he's called by God to leave, um, what you'll notice from the father of the faith is that he almost did what God asked. He was called to leave his family, but what did he do? He left, but he took his family with him. He was partially obedient. I don't know about you, but when I share with my kids about partial obedience, I tell them partial obedience is, in fact, disobedience. And so the great father of the faith started his journey off actually in disobedience. God said, leave. He did, but he brought them along with him. Then, as he's making his journey, he is traveling now with his family, and apparently his wife, Sarah, she was 65 years old. He was 75, but she must have been some kind of stunner. She was some kind of beauty. The Bible tries to describe her beauty, but we know that she was a beautiful woman because Abraham was scared to death of every land they went to that the kings were going to kill him to have Sarah. So she was smoking hot. That's the Brock Ashley version. And he was scared to death that they're going to kill him for his smoking hot wife. And so what Abraham, the father of the faith, does is he actually lies and says that, well, she's just my sister because he wanted to save his own skin. And so the father of the faith has now been disobedient, and he's lied not on one occasion, but two different times that his wife was his sister. Now, all that being said, what what really stands out is that he, this father of the faith, when it came to the promise of God, when God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. His His name Abraham even means father of nations. But do you know what he lacked? A child. He had no children. And so how was it possible he could be the father of nations if he had no child? And so after 10 years of waiting for God to give them a child, they got impatient. And his wife, Sarah, has this brilliant idea that maybe we should help God out a little bit. Any of you ever tried to help God with a promise? Right. And so they decide to help God. And she says, why don't you take my Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, as uh, your not your wife, but as a surrogate mother. You should go into her and conceive a child, and we'll pretend like this was the child God was talking about. Now, this sounds weird to us this day and age, but in that time, it was acceptable. And so Abraham goes into Hagar, and she conceives, and they have themselves a little Ishmael baby. And if you want to know how the rest of the story goes for Ishmael, or how it's going uh, to this very day, all the Arab nations consider themselves sons of, uh, you guessed it, Ishmael. That, by the way, is how the works of our flesh often go. We end up having ourselves a little Ishmael baby that is a pain forever and ever. But nevertheless, what you notice about this story is um, God didn't say it was through Hagar that he would have a child, but through Sarah. And so another 13 years later, Sarah is told yet again, you're going to have a baby. And at the ripe old age of 90, she conceives and has a child. But what you'll notice through that story is the father of the faith, um, he lacked faith. (laughs) I'm actually encouraged by that because I think about how many times I have been partially obedient 
how many times that I have struggled with truth-telling, how many times that I have completely lacked faith, and yet God's love for me is not dependent upon my faith, but upon his faithfulness. I am so thankful for his faithfulness to me over and over again. He is faithful even when I am not faithful. Now, verse 9, so that those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. We are blessed because of believing Abraham, who struggled with belief. In verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so the law, what Paul is saying, actually brings about a curse. And he is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And in this spot, what it says there is, cursed is everyone who does not keep every commandment of the law. And in the Hebrew, if you look up what the word all translates to in our English, it's complicated. It means all, right? This, it means all of it. You, if you're going to follow the law, it means you must follow all of the law in its entirety. And so the issue for us is we cannot keep even the top 10 list, let alone all 613 commandments that are in the Old Testament. And so it becomes a curse to us. Now, thankfully, we're New Testament believers, and we have Jesus, right? We have Jesus. He's come to do away with the law, and so we have his wonderful teachings like the Sermon on the Mount until you begin to read the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus does is he breaks down the law for people. He says things like, uh, look, the law says uh, you shall not murder, but what I say is that if you even hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Ooh, ooh, that seems kind of harsh. He goes on to say, the law says you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked upon a woman and lusted after her, you've committed adultery. Uh-oh, it's getting a little serious in here. This is the teaching of Jesus. He is now internalizing the law. The law through the Sermon on the Mount actually got much more serious. It got way more drastic. How on earth are we going to be able to keep the law when now it's internalized, not just merely external? Now, Paul continues in verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. No one is capable of being justified by the law. This is obvious. Based upon Jesus' own teaching, no one is going to be able to keep this thing. It should be obvious to us. But here Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where God says the just shall live by faith. This concept of justification by faith is covered in Romans chapter 1. That's really the emphasis when Paul shares the verse there. In Hebrews chapter 11, the emphasis of the just living by faith is really upon faith. In fact, that chapter of Hebrews is called the hall of faith. But I want to share with you that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, the emphasis that Paul is trying to communicate here is that we shall live by faith. That we are to have life by faith. Not just simply life eternal, but life right now and abundant Christian life. We are called to have an abundant Christian life now and for all of eternity by our faith that we can have in him. Now, this particular 
verse in this section of scripture, this was very convicting for a young man who was a Catholic priest about 500 years ago. Because at that time, the church had become all about works. It was a works-based faith. And this young man was convicted by his lack of works, even though he was very pious, very religious. And so he sought to fast for sometimes weeks at a time. He would take a whip and literally whip himself across the back to try to bring his flesh into some kind of subjection. And yet, even in this spot, he found his flesh was still deceitfully wicked. And so this young man was so convicted, so heartbroken about not being able to be justified by his works, not being able to attain to righteousness until he landed in Galatians chapter 3 where he read, the just shall live by faith, not by works, but by faith. And this young man's name was Martin Luther. The Protestant Reformation was started because as he read this, he realized, I cannot possibly do enough to be justified by my works. It's only by faith I can be justified. And we're sitting here right now, thankfully, because Martin Luther was convicted by this passage of Scripture. It's not by works, but it's only by faith. And what the law says is do, but what faith is trying to communicate is it's already been done. It's already been completed. Now, verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ, in verse 13, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. In verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here you have the curse of the law. That cursed is anyone who tries to follow the law because we can't keep it. All except for one man. One man kept the law. Kept it in its entirety. And then this same man, this same Jesus, then became the curse for us. And when you think about when the curse started, all the way back at the fall in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam, he could not keep the law. God gave him the law of exactly one command. And mankind couldn't even keep the one law that God gave us. And so as Adam became a lawbreaker and the wages of sin were death, he was destined to die. What God gave him was cursings that would happen because of his disobedience, that he would have to labor as he worked. That by the sweat of his brow, he would actually work the ground. And then finally, he said that as you try to work the ground, it's going to raise up thorns and thistles because of your own disobedience. And yet realize what Jesus did in the last 24 hours of his life as he completed all the law, every jot and every tittle, the only person that could do it. What he did at the Last Supper is he broke the bread and he said, my body is broken for you. He broke himself for our behalf so we wouldn't have to labor. As he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the, just hours before he would be taken and tried illegally by his own brothers. As he's there in the garden, as he's crying out to the Lord, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done as he's crying out, thinking about the weight of all the sin of all the world upon him, great droplets of blood. He literally sweated blood from his own brow on our behalf. And then finally, as he is 
taken off to trial and the Roman soldiers beat him, what they did was they twisted a crown of thorns, the very symbol of the curse itself, and they pressed it down into his head on our behalf, literally taking each step of the curse of Adam upon himself for you and I. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so here's Jesus taking on the curse on our behalf. Now verse 15, brethren, I speak in a manner of men, though it Though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed. No one annuls it or makes it void or adds to it. In verse 16, now Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to the seeds, as of many seeds, but as of one. And to your seed, and to your seed who is Christ. In verse 17, and this I say that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul or break the covenant that was confirmed before, by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law, for, excuse me, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so what he's commenting on here is the law, the, the promise, excuse me, was given to Abraham 430 years before the law ever even came to be. And it was a covenant that God made with Abraham. By grace, through faith, he gives him this covenant. But here's the thing about covenants in that day. When two people would enter into a covenant, what they would do is actually a sacrifice an animal and lay it one half on one side and one half on the other. And then both parties would walk down through the sacrifice to confirm that they both, until their death, were going to stand beside this covenant. And so here we have this whole scene happening from Genesis 12 through Genesis 15 where God actually gives a covenant to Abraham. But what I love about this, something very interesting happens. It's that um, Abraham was sleeping, sitting off on the sidelines in this vision. And guess who passed through the sacrifices? Only God. Abraham never walked down the sacrifices. And the reason is because the covenant was not dependent on any work that Abraham would do. God literally made a covenant with himself for this promise that he would give, an irrevocable covenant that he gave to Abraham and to his seed, singular, speaking of Christ Jesus himself. God makes a covenant with one who will never break a covenant, never break a promise. Me, I'm liable to break all kinds of things. God is not liable to break any promise. And so he makes this promise with himself. And the only thing Abraham had to do was show up. <laughs> he had to just sit there on the sidelines while God did all the work. Do not underestimate the value of showing up. Often I think we, have to, we get it in our heads that I must do this. I must do that for the Lord to be happy with me. But all he's really asking you to do is show up, be present, just be there and be prepared for him then to bless you. Don't underestimate that as a value. Now, verse 19, as we continue on, what purpose then does the law serve? Paul asking more questions. It was added because of, of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by whom by the hand of a mediator. 
Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. And so what we see is, if our belief is enough, what Paul's asking is, why do we have the law anyway? If simple belief was enough, why do we need the law? Well, for one, what the law does is it shows us, it gives us a mirror into our very nature. It shows what we have going on on the inside. It helps me recognize what I have going on in me. And what Paul writes here is that the law was given by a mediator or through angels. Jewish tradition says that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai actually through angels. Now, that's not in Scripture. That's merely their tradition. But Paul brings that up so they could consider it. But what he says is, while angels had to give Moses the law, and then Moses gave it to you, you needed multiple mediators to receive it. The promise was given directly by God to Abraham. His promise is conveyed to us directly through his son, through his word. We don't need a mediator to receive it. This is what he's trying to communicate. Now, verse 21. Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Why then do we need the law? We need the law because God loves choice. He is all about giving us choices. And so what the law actually does is gives us a choice between uh, receiving Jesus, receiving salvation through faith just by simple belief, or we can try to perform the law. All 613 commands. If you want to achieve and make your way to heaven that way, you can try it, but the thing is you have to keep all of it in its entirety. And if you break one single bit of it, then you receive the punishment of the law, which is death. And so God loves us enough to give us a choice. And Paul, knowing this, knowing his own Hebrew background, on the external side of things, he did a tremendous job of keeping the law. Paul would say, I went through all the commandments. I did a great job until I got the number 10 on the top 10 list. Or the Lord says, thou shalt not covet. And what he knew about himself was that he was convicted. He had coveted. He had wanted things that other people had for himself. And he began to internalize the law. Wait a minute, the law is internal, not merely external. And so he knew even of himself, he could not keep the law. Now verse 22, but scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ must be given to those who believe. Scriptures can find all of us under sin. If you want to try to adhere to the law, you are all going to be condemned. That's the reality of what Scripture is showing us. It's proving what we actually are, that we are sinners and that we desperately need a Savior. We don't have it in ourselves to save ourselves. But what I love about this is grace existed even before the law. God gave Abraham grace and salvation by grace even before the law ever came about. Now, in our society, what we find is promoted more often than not is if I could just do enough good things to outweigh my bad things, won't I go to heaven? We, we feel like it's some kind of a scale that if I can just do enough good, outweigh all my bad, I'm going to be in really good shape when I stand at the pearly gates. But the reality is um, that's not the standard. Perfection is the standard. And if we're not 
perfect. We cannot stand before a perfect God. We have no way of being able to measure up. And so no matter how much we want to feel good about ourselves and feel like, if, as long as I'm doing okay today, I'm going to be with Jesus. But here's the, the sad part. What if I'm having a bad day? If I'm having a, a bad day, it means I'm now going to hell. And so this life is lived where we think when I have a good day, he loves me. And when I have a bad day, he hates me. It's an awful way to live. But it's been promoted over and over again, and we can't measure up. It, it's a bipolar lifestyle that we can't live to. And the truth is, judgment is impending. And so many times we're afraid to share that with people, but it's true. The best story that I came across this week to help convey this is, if you could imagine uh, all of us flying in a 747 on our way to Hawaii. I've decided to take you guys all, bless you with a trip to Hawaii. And so we all load in a big, beautiful 747. We make our way across the Pacific Ocean. But as we're on our way, uh, the pilot realizes he didn't actually make sure enough fuel was loaded to make it all the way to Honolulu. That instead, this thing is going to go down in the Pacific. We are going to crash. We're going down like the Hindenburg. But to our credit, thank you, Southwest Airlines, they decided to provide every single person on board with a parachute, a way to actually have life, even though this plane is going to crash. And so the pilot decides to communicate with the stewardess, and he doesn't want to communicate the destruction that's impending. And so look, just tell everybody, give them the option to be able to take on a parachute if they'd like to have one for themselves. And so the stewardess gets on, and she communicates, bing, uh, attention, passengers. There has been uh, parachutes provided for all of you on the plane today. If you would like to receive one, you are going to find it so comfortable. It is going to be uh, so wonderful on your back as you sit in your seat. And you're just going to love the security and the peace you have because you have a parachute that's been provided to you by Southwest Airlines. We are so thankful for them today. And so what you'd find is a few people would raise their hands, three, four people in the cabin, and they would get the parachute on, and now you've got your parachute. You're one of just a few that have uh, willingly accepted it. But after about an hour, man, that thing's uncomfortable. Like, I thought it was going to be all peace and love, and now I got this stinking parachute, and I got my kid trying to lay on my lap, and I can't, the stupid tray table won't stay up, and now I'm upset about the parachute that I willingly accepted. And so what I do is I'm just shucking that bad boy off. I'm done. No more parachute. <laughs> but imagine the reality when you realize the plane's going down. <laughs> now, if you rewind the tape and instead, if the pilot who's up there realizes the ship is going down, realizes that the plane is going to crash into the Pacific, if instead he communicates to the stewardess, hey, look, tell everybody on board, don't panic, but this puppy's going down. We're getting ready to plummet into the Pacific, but here's the good news. Southwest has provided parachutes for everybody. Get on the air and let them know. You know that as soon as she makes that announcement... Hey, everybody, got some news for you. This thing is going down. We are going to crash right into the Pacific. But good news, everybody can have a parachute. Please raise your hand if you'd like one. I mean, everybody, right? Everybody's got their hands raised. And guess what? Nobody's complaining that it's uncomfortable. Nobody's worried about the tray table or the seat back. I don't give a rip. I'm hanging on to this parachute. I am so thankful because this bad boy is 
is going down. You see, when we don't communicate to the people that we love and to those around us, the reality, which is this bad boy is going down. Are we really being loving? Are we actually caring for them? Because that's the truth. And you look at what's happening, it's obvious to everybody. But the reality is we spend most of our days uncomfortable, this accepting of Jesus. I don't feel like what I thought I was going to feel like. It's not lovey-lovey all the time. But he is so gracious to us. He loves us so much. He's provided for us in advance so we can have the comfort of knowing we are secured for all of eternity. But we don't share what's happening to the plane. And so people aren't convicted. And this is what's happening right now in church all across America is that we have gone so far on the side of grace. And, and by the way, it is the grace of God that leads a man to repentance. That is true. But we also have to communicate that there is a day coming where he's going to have to judge what's happening. And this thing, because of our own sin nature, he loves us enough to give us all kinds of time. Think about how patient he's been with you throughout your life. That's how much he loves you. He's given you all kinds of time, but there will come a day where there will not be any more time. And do we love people enough to communicate the destruction that's ahead? You see, so when we wonder, why do we have the law? Why is there this tension that exists? Well, without the law, I don't realize how much destruction I'm in for. I don't realize how very doomed I am. And oh, by the way, I don't appreciate nearly as much his grace that he saved me by if I don't have the law that I'm staring down the barrel of. And so when I wake up most days, I don't know about you, I'm so thankful because I know what kind of man I am. I know what kind of tendencies I have. I know what kind of thoughts still roll through my head even after Jesus has cleansed me from all kind of stuff. I am so thankful for his grace. I am so thankful for the opportunity to sing about him and praise him because he saved me from all of that. Now, verse 23, before I run completely out of time. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. In verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so what the law communicates is, I'm a lawbreaker. I'm in trouble. But what Jesus does, what grace does, is it points us back to him. What the law says is, I need a savior. And this handwriting of requirements that Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 2 that was against us, that was contrary to us, has been buried with Christ has been nailed to the cross, never to be raised again. And so now, as a result, I'm no longer in need of a tutor. I'm no longer in need of the law because he now lives in me. He is now directing me from the inside out, not the outside in. The law was oppressive from the outside in. Grace is inclusive from the inside out. And verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so he's saying now you are a new creation, raised up in Christ Jesus, him living in you. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, I shared it with you last week, but we are now a new creation in Christ. 
set free from the, the condemnation of the law. And what Jesus does for you is he actually provides a robe of righteousness. So then when we're considering all the ways we failed him completely and utterly, and you wonder how God might look upon you, what Isaiah says in one of my favorite verses in all the Old Testament, Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You realize when God looks upon you, what he sees is robes of righteousness. He sees the perfect work of his son. He doesn't see all my failings, all my falters I have all throughout the week. He sees robes of righteousness. That is not just good news, my friends. That is great news. That is news I needed to hear. Now, verse 28, as we head down the home stretch, verse 28 says, oh, wrong chapter. Verse 28 of chapter 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what he is doing there is he's addressing the prayers that would be, have, that would be had by the Jewish males of that day. For the Jewish men would get up in their synagogues and they would pray, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile dog or a sinner or even worse, a woman. Thank you, Lord, for this. This is the way these guys would pray. But what Paul addresses for them is, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. What the law does over and over again is it establishes laws and barriers and tells us what we can not do. And what Jesus is doing over and over again is tearing, law, tearing walls down ripping veils from top to bottom, making a way for us to have complete and total access so that we can run boldly before the throne of grace. It's a wonderful thing. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them. Where lastly, in verse 29, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That no longer is the promise of the blessing confined to only a particular group, male or female, or a particular ethnic group, a Jew or Gentile, but it is available for all who are children of faith. You're able to be a child of Abraham. That is tremendous news. That is news that many of us needed to hear today. Because the reality is for us, we often get tired. It gets to be difficult. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that this promise is now for today. We are called to live an abundant Christian life right here and now. We are also called into eternal life for all of eternity. But the abundancy of the Christian life is for right now as well. And we can start living like that. But what Paul says here in chapter 6 verse 9 to these Galatians, because he knows how they feel, he says in verse 9 of chapter 6, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And I find that over and over again we grow weary while trying to do good. We get tired. We get exhausted because I've shared the plan of salvation. I've tried to sow good seeds in this life. And yet this family member, this coworker, this person is not... So what happens to us is we grow
weary. We begin to get sour, right? We begin to get tired in this life. And so as a result, we look like a bunch of ho-hum Christians oftentimes. That church services all over look like people just dragging in. I want to go worship Jesus today. Praise Jesus. So thankful he saved me. Saved me from all my sins. Going to have eternity with him. Thank you, Jesus. We look sleepy and tired because we've grown weary while doing good. Do you understand? He wants you to live a vibrant life now. And, and the, the promise he gives is that we don't need to grow weary because what we have sowed, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. That family member that doesn't know Jesus yet, that one you've been praying for for all that time, his promise is he's going to do a good thing. It's not up to us to reap that. It's up to him. James says in chapter 3 that uh, peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for a harvest of righteousness. All I'm called to do, though, is sow peace and not get weary while doing it. Continue to sow peace. Continue to realize that he is going to make something good, even of the mess that we see. So don't grow weary today. Continue to live an abundant Christian life by faith, not by the works of our flesh. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can live by grace through faith. Thank you, Lord, that this is not all dependent upon how hard I can work, on, on how many good things I can chalk on the good side of the list. Thank you, Lord, that even while I am not faithful, you are. Thank you, Lord, that even when I lack faith, you are faithful because of the promise you have made with a capital P through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for Old Testament covenants which you do not rely upon man to walk through in order to see them come to fruition. I'm so thankful that all Abraham had to do was show up because many times all I can do, Lord, is just show up and sit in awe of your presence. Father, help us continue to do that. Continue to have faith even when we're tired. Continue to have joy even when it's a struggle. To put that smile on our face because we know that you saved us from ourselves. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand? From rivers to the mountain 
we hear Christ be magnified. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let His praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified. The altar of my Christ be magnified in me. And every creature finds its inmost melody. I'll stand strong and worship you And if it puts me in the fire I'll rejoice cause you're there too I won't be formed by feelings I hold fast to what is true If the cross brings transformation I'll be crucified with you Cause death is just the doorway Into resurrection life if I join you in the suffering, then I'll join when you rise. When you return in glory, all the angels and your saints, my heart will still be singing, and my song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise, Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified in the altar of my life, Christ be magnified in me. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you guys. Uh, may the Lord be with you and continue to have his face shine upon you throughout the week. Uh, God bless you guys as you go live out a life free in the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, the abundant Christian life. God bless you. Have a great week.